Welcome to Engaging the Experts, a series of interviews with pharmacy practitioners and educators on cutting-edge topics. In part two of this two-part Engaging the Experts interview, William Zelmer talks with Edward Lee and James Stevenson regarding biosimilars, focusing on interchangeability and the integration of biosimilars into the medication use system. This installment is produced by ASHP Advantage and supported by independent educational grants from Boringer Ingelheim Pharmaceuticals Incorporated and Sandoz, a Novartis company. It is available at www.ashpadvantage.com forward slash biosims now or via iTunes as a podcast. This is William Zelmer for the ASHP program, Engaging the Experts. I'm speaking with Edward Lee and James Stevenson, who presented a session on biosimilars at the 2015 ASHP Major Clinical Meeting. Ed is Associate Professor in the Department of Pharmacy Practice at the University of New England College of Pharmacy in Portland, Maine. Jim is Professor in the Department of Clinical Pharmacy at the University of Michigan College of Pharmacy in Ann Arbor, as well as President of Hospital and Health System Services for Visant Incorporated. Ed, um, an applicant for licensing a biosimilar can pursue an additional level of approval that authorizes interchange of the biosimilar product with the reference product. How will the FDA go about making this determination? You know, this concept goes back to the issue of immunogenicity. The challenge is knowing what type of study and what type of data is needed to make sure that from an immunogenicity and safety standpoint, there are absolutely no clinical consequences between switching from uh, an interchangeable biosimilar to the reference product. So that's what interchangeability means. And the primary worry is that immunogenicity. And it's not really for those more simple biologics like philgrastim. You know, those are, are relatively easier to characterize, but really what we're talking about is the difficulty with assessing the immunogenicity of monoclonal antibodies that are given for long periods of time and sometimes even stopping these monoclonal antibodies and then reintroducing them uh, when the patient progresses on their disease. And, and all of those factors are incredibly hard to characterize, you know, hard to design a study around. I guess what I'm saying is that the FDA has not released guidance documents on how they will go about making the, this determination. Uh, we know that there's going to be some sort of switching studies involved where uh, the design of the study will have to be switching from one product to the other just to make sure that there are no consequences of doing that. But right now, we're not sure what specific data will entail, and we're waiting for the FDA to release that guidance. Well, there's been quite a bit of uh, information put out about this issue of interchangeability of biosimilar and its reference product. You know, given that there is some lot-to-lot variability in the molecular characteristics of reference biologic products themselves, does this mitigate to any extent concerns about interchangeability? No, I think it does to a certain extent in that we have some experience knowing that the current products that we have out, uh, some key biologics that we administer to patients can be considered as biosimilars to themselves. Uh, They're 10-year-old versions. And so we might say that there are no issues uh, because of that. However, that's an interesting point, but you know, we have no other options, right? It's not like we have a different molecule that we could give that if we didn't feel comfortable with that. And I think the fact that uh, having a biosimilar means that we have an extra choice now. And because we have an extra choice, we want to get it right. And I think that's why this assessment of interchangeability 
the bar has been set pretty high. I'm comfortable that if uh, whatever data and uh, data package that the FDA decides upon to get to that interchangeability bar, I'm pretty comfortable with following that and, and being comfortable with calling them an interchangeable product. Mm-hmm. Well, Ed, some states have passed laws at the bidding of the biopharmaceutical industry that impose special requirements for biosimilar interchange. Could you comment on the status of that situation? Sure. It's interesting that when these laws were passed, they were positioned as anti-substitution laws. But when you look at the language of these laws, they actually look very similar to the generic substitution laws with respect to these would be appropriate for those interchangeable designated biosimilars. And there are the same types of provisions of dispenses written, notification of either the patient or prescriber about whether or not an interchange was done. You know, many states have have notification laws that you have to tell either the patient or prescriber that you substituted with a generic. And then there's provisions for record keeping and things like that. So a lot of these laws actually look very similar to the generic laws. I think what made people up in arms was the fact that some of these were sponsored by the industry. And just from a grassroots advocacy standpoint, I think that's generally a bad idea. I think pharmacists who are residing in that state need to take the leadership in terms of designing their own uh, state substitution laws. So I would just encourage those of you uh, who still have uh, legislation yet to be passed uh, to go ahead and do that. Bill, I wondered if I could comment on that. I of think course, the, yes. Really, I agree with what Ed has, has said. I think the most contentious element in many of these laws are in, in some of them, they require the pharmacist to notify the physician if they were to substitute an interchangeable biosimilar. You know, that is the difference from generic substitution, where typically pharmacists do that automatically without explicitly uh, sending notification to the physician. So I think that's one of the key things that people are really considering in these is uh, how much additional safety does that provide and does that create a, a barrier to substitution by having that um, that provider notification? Well, Jim, pharmacy and therapeutics committees, I suspect, might feel that they're moving into some uncharted waters here where they begin considering biosimilars for their formularies. What do you see as the primary issues they'll be facing? Actually, I think that as people start to think about their formulary processes, I, I think they can feel comfortable that a, a good fundamental approach to the formulary will be very applicable to the biosimilars. And in fact, you know, many health systems probably already have a number of drug use policies and if they've taken a number of formulary uh, decisions around other biologics. And so I think we can apply those principles but there are some nuances and some complexities that I think have to be considered. Certainly, we've talked earlier about that the range of indications may or may not be exactly the same when the FDA approves a biosimilar. And so formulary committees are going to have to determine whether or not they feel comfortable extrapolating to other indications. And we all know that for many biologics, they end up being used for uh, indications that aren't even in the FDA label. And so what are they going to do about uh, those? Will they extrapolate the biosimilar across those other uh, indications? There's also a number of uh, considerations that are a little bit more specific to the actual manufacturer and, and products that I think also have to be considered. Biologics are very expensive, and so formulary committees have to look at how they're packaged, uh, whether they have anti-counterfeit measures, 
there's also consideration from a manufacturer perspective about the manufacturer's history of supply reliability. We all suffer through many drug shortages. And with the potential for immunogenicity, um, these are products that you don't necessarily want to be switching unnecessarily between different products. And so I think there's some considerations there. The, the biosimilars may actually be approved in different or fewer dosage forms than the reference product, and that could have some practical considerations. For example, with the filgrastim SNDZ that's been approved, that filgrastim is only available in pre-filled syringes, whereas the reference filgrastim is available in pre-filled syringes and vials. And so for adults, that's probably not a problem at all. But if you're a health system that takes care of pediatric patients, the lack of a vial may be a concern in making a formulary decision. So those types of practical considerations are going to be very important for formulary committees in addition to the typical safety, efficacy, and cost considerations. Sure. Well, just uh, extending that a bit, Jim, are there any types of issues related to transitions of care that institutions and practitioners will be facing relating to the use of biosimilars? Yeah, I think, again, back to the issue of pharmacovigilance and, so, and being able to assure that we know which product the patient is or has been receiving and we can have some continuity. It's very important that healthcare professionals who are doing medication histories, and working with patients and other providers at the transitions of care are very conscientious about the nomenclature of these products and really working with patients to assure that we really understand which product that they're on and whether or not we're making an intentional conversion to another product, substitution. We don't want to do this accidentally. So uh, I think transitions of care will be very important with these biosimilar products and, and the naming convention will become uh, very important. Jim, from a pharmacy department operations standpoint, what do you think will be the key challenges related to biosimilars? Well, again, I mentioned a number of the challenges related to drug use policy and formulary uh, changes. Once those are determined, I think then we've got a process of how do we implement this in a safe and effective manner in our medication use process. And so I think there's a lot of um, issues around our information systems so that we set up our systems in a way that we can differentiate between these similar biologic products. So how are we going to build these in our CPOE and e-prescribing systems so it makes it clear that the, the prescriber, the physician, knows which product that they're ordering. Similarly, in our dispensing systems and in our electronic medication administration records, those involved in, in the dispensing and administration need to make sure that they're utilizing the appropriate biologic within a particular category. There's implications in how we build the ordering systems, our protocols. Uh, we've talked about medication reconciliation and those sorts of things. Those are all going to be practical challenges in um, implementing these products safely into the medication use process. Well, as we conclude our discussion, I'd like each of you to comment on any specific points related to biosimilars that you would like to reinforce for pharmacists. Ed, what would you say in this regard? Sure. I think the issue related to biosimilars is that 
it's not just pharmacists who are going to be dealing with these types of products. The physicians and other advanced practitioners will be the ones who are prescribing them. The patients are going to be the ones who are using them. The nurses are going to be the ones who are administering them. And so uh, this is really an interprofessional type of topic. I think as pharmacists, we're positioned to be the health system leaders in terms of understanding and educating everybody else about what is a biosimilar, what can biosimilars do for our institution, but also what are the practical concerns and uh, what are the operational procedures surrounding biosimilars at that specific institution. Jim, what would you say about any concluding comments here, points that you would like to emphasize? Sure. Well, I, I agree with Ed that pharmacists really need to take a leadership role in educating all of the stakeholders in the process, uh, prescribers, pharmacists, nurses, and patients. This area is, is fairly complex, and there is a, a, a need for education in order to uh, use these in a, in a safe and effective manner. I also think that pharmacists can feel fairly confident in the FDA's approach to approving biosimilars based on the experience in Europe. I I know initially when I started uh, thinking about biosimilars, I was very concerned about, because of the complexity of these molecules, whether or not we could really safely introduce these into our healthcare system. But as I've learned more and more, particularly about the experience in Europe, I've become much more comfortable that uh, the approach that we're taking here in the U.S. is very conservative and appropriate and that we can utilize these uh, biosimilars in a very effective manner. The last thing in particular, there's a number of key issues that are yet to be resolved. Uh, We've talked about the naming convention that's out there still is not finalized. Um, The FDA still hasn't uh, um, published their criteria about how a biosimilar will achieve that level uh, that's called interchangeability or an interchangeable biosimilar. And things about pharmacovigilance as well as payer strategies, all of these things are yet to be determined. This is an area that pharmacists will really have to uh, keep an eye on to stay current and to help advise and guide their health systems and their colleagues so that we can introduce these products and utilize them in a a safe and cost-effective manner. That concludes part two of this two-part Engaging the Experts interview. If you missed part one of this interview, which focuses on the status of biosimilars in the European Union and United States, visit www.ashpadvantage.com forward slash biosimsnow or access it via iTunes as a podcast. Other educational resources on this topic are also available at www.ashpadvantage.com forward slash biosimsnow.